Chapter 4 of Victorian Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruhi Huck. Victorian Literature by Clement Shorter. Chapter 4 The Critics. The plan of describing all the writers of a period who are not poets, novelists and historians as critics is open to many objections, although I intend to adopt it. If Matthew Arnold's plea for poetry as a criticism of life holds good, it is precisely the poets, novelists and historians who are the true critics. An alternative plan would have been to give a chapter to prose writers and another to the poets and still another arrangement would have been to divide the subject as de quincey suggested into the literature of power and the literature of imagination the former including the philosophers and historians the latter the poets the novelists and the more picturesque of the prose writers carline and ruskin for example eighteen nineteen one unhesitatingly assigns to mr ruskin the distinction of the critic whose work is most eloquent and impressive john ruskin was born in hunter street brunswick square london he has told us in his autobiography preterita of his early life under a tender mother's care of his boyish affection for byron and scott and of the youthful impulse to art study excited by the present of rogers italy with turner's illustrations in eighteen thirty seven he was entered as a gentleman commoner at christchurch oxford gaining two years later the newdigate prize for english poetry his subject being salset and elephanta in eighteen forty three he produced the first volume of modern printers their superiority in the art of landscape painting to all the ancient masters by a graduate of oxford the work originated he says in indignation at the shallow and false criticism of the periodicals of the day on the work of the great living artist to whom it principally refers the artist in question was joseph Mallord william turner upon whom ruskin has pronounced somewhat contradictory judgments at different periods in his career modern painters soon extended beyond the mere essay at first intended and in its final form of five handsome volumes it was not only a philosophical treatise on landscape painting but an exhaustive dissertation on many phases of life from one whom mazzini declared to possess the most analytical brain in europe another important work the seven lamps of architecture eighteen forty nine is a brilliant attempt at reform in domestic and church architecture the lamps represent the characteristics which good architecture should possess the first is the lamp of sacrifice what of beauty and what of riches we may possess let a portion be dedicated to god it was in this spirit that our cathedrals were built the second the lamp of truth is a plea for honesty in architecture no imitation wood or marble but solid wood and solid stone exactly as a woman of feeling he says would not wear false jewels so would a builder of honour disdain false ornaments the using of them is just as downright and inexcusable a lie the third is the lamp of power 
until that street architecture of ours is bettered until we give it some size and boldness until we give our windows recess and our walls thickness i know not how we can blame our architects for their feebleness in more important work the fourth is the lamp of beauty and in this chapter he maintains that all the most lovely forms and thoughts are directly taken from natural objects the fifth is the lamp of life to those who love architecture he says the life and accent of the hand are everything the sixth is the lamp of memory all public edifices should be records of national life all ordinary dwelling houses endeared to their owners by sacred and sweet associations there is infinite sanctity in a good man's house the seventh is the lamp of obedience and here he pleads eloquently for the enforcement of an established type of architecture the gothic in its judgment lending itself more readily to all services vulgar or noble the stones of venice eighteen fifty one to eighteen fifty three in three volumes gives in further detail ruskin's views of the laws of architecture the pre-raphaelite movement of melias rossetti and holman hunt early enlisted his sympathy and in pre-raphaelitism eighteen fifty one he declared that they had worthily followed the advice given in modern painters to go to nature in all singleness of heart and walk with her laboriously and trustingly having no other thought but how best to penetrate her meaning rejecting nothing selecting nothing and scorning nothing from that time until his slade lectures at oxford in eighteen eighty three to eighteen eighty four ruskin wrote several books on painting and architecture all of them in a style which attracts even those who are least in sympathy with his, his opinions but as goethe he declared of himself that posterity would honour him not for his poetry but for his discoveries in science so ruskin perhaps more justly insists that it is as an economist that he is most deserving of remembrance the four essays on the first principles of political economy entitled unto this last eighteen sixty two he declares to be the truest rightest worded and most serviceable things he has ever written these essays were originally published by thackeray in the cornhill magazine but the remonstrances of its readers brought the series to a speedy end the principles of state socialism there initiated have since entered the field in direct contest with the established order of things mr ruskin would have every child in the country taught a trade at the cost of government he would have manufactories and workshops entirely under government regulation for the production and sale of every necessary of life and for the exercise of every useful art he would permit competition with government manufactories and shops but all those who desired work would be sure of it at the state establishments finally he would provide comfortable homes for the old and destitute as it ought to be quite as natural and straightforward a matter for a labourer to take his pension from his parish because he has deserved well of his parish as for a man in high rank to take his pension from his country because he has deserved well of his country ruskin has amplified his economic doctrines in monera pulveris time and tide by wear and time and force clavigera 
time and tide is a collection of letters on the laws of work to the late thomas dixon a working cork cutter of sunderland they were originally published in the manchester examiner Fors clavegera is a series of ninety-six letters to working men which were issued in monthly parts and rendered additionally interesting by the quantity of autobiographical anecdotes so freely interspersed in their pages the tale is derived as ruskin has explained from the latin force the best part of three good english words force fortitude and fortune and the root of the adjective clavigera being either clava a club clavis a key or clavas a nail and gero to carry force the club-bearer therefore represents the strength of hercules or of deed the key-bearer the strength of ulysses or of patience and the nail-bearer the strength of lycurgus or of law to carry out his principles practically ruskin established for a short time a tea-shop marlebone road where nothing but the best tea was sold at a fair price and he founded the st george's guild with a view of showing the rational organization of country life independent of that of cities in other words the restoration of the peasantry to the soil of england one of the conditions of membership was that every member should give one-tenth of his property to the guild for carrying out his work ruskin led the way his property being then estimated at seventy thousand pounds he has told us in fours that out of the one hundred and fifty seven thousand pounds left him by his parents he has spent hundred and fifty three thousand pounds much of this must have gone to the ruskin museum at sheffield it is however in following carlyle as a bracing invigorating influence that ruskin has most claim on the gratitude of the present generation if carlyle taught us to be content with this miserable actual with such environment as may have fallen to our lot his disciple has given the impulse which has led to the beautifying of the environment the more refined taste in dress furniture and in dwelling houses which has characterized the later victorian era and side by side therewith a greater simplicity of life on the part of the more cultured rich are in an especial degree due to the influence of ruskin what is chiefly needed in england at the present day he says is to show the quantity of pleasure that may be obtained by a consistent well-administered competent modest confessed and laborious we need examples of people who leaving heaven to decide whether they are to rise in the world decide for themselves that they will be happy in it and have resolved to seek not greater wealth but simpler pleasures not higher fortune but deeper felicity making the first of possessions self-possession and honouring themselves in the harmless pride and calm pursuits of peace in the crown of wild olive time and tide and sesame and lilies he emphasises this teaching with his customary eloquence of these books by far the most important is sesame and lilies which was written he says while my energies were still unbroken and my temper unfretted and if read in connection with unto this last contains the chief truths i have endeavoured through all my life to display and which under the warnings i have received to prepare for its close i am chiefly thankful to have learned and thought 
it treats of the majesty of the influence of good books and of good women if we know how to read them and how to honour how to read books he shows by analysing the well-known passage of milton's lycidas on the pilot of the galilean lake and explains the deep meaning of its every word how to honour women how women may become worthy of honour he shows by taking us to shakespeare and to scott whose portia's and rosalind's catherine satan's and diana vernon's are ever ready at critical moments to be a help and a guidance to men and finally appeals to the great florentine and shows us beatrice leading dante through the starry spheres of heaven up to the very throne of light and of truth but the book is full of healthy and helpful passages and is like so much that its author has written a moral inspiration for all who read it i am a great man ruskin once said the consciousness of genius which reminds us that horace and milton shakespeare and goethe were equally outspoken we may well believe will endorse the self-criticism and will not willingly let his works or his memory die of late years mr ruskin has lived not in the most robust health in a house at coniston in the english lake district the next most prominent critic of the period is one upon whom ruskin has always poured his bitterest scorn and who yet will be ever remembered with warmest reverence by those who are old enough to have been his contemporaries i mean john stuart mill jeremy bentham who gave such an impulse to all political reform and made a complete revolution in english jurisprudence died in eighteen thirty two his friend james mill who wrote the history of india and an analysis of the human mind died four years later it was says professor bain james mill's greatest contribution to human progress to have given us his son it may be so john stuart mill born in rodney street pentonville his education which was conducted by his father would have been the mental ruin of a mind of smaller powers i never was a boy he said never played at, at cricket it is better to let nature have her own way he began greek at three and latin at eight years of age the list of classical authors with whose works he was familiar at thirteen is truly appalling this in itself would have been a small matter had not his cold stern father discouraged all imaginative reading poetry in particular he was taught to look upon as mere vanity and there are few passages in mill's autobiography more interesting than the story how in early manhood wordsworth's poetry came to him like veritable balm in gilead for spiritual refreshment and healing in eighteen twenty two twenty three he obtained a clerkship in the india house from which he withdrew with ample compensation when the indian government was transferred to the crown in eighteen fifty eight meanwhile he had been an industrious contributor to the westminster review and other periodicals and regularly attended the debates of the speculative society which met at grote's house scarcely any scene in literature is better known than the destruction of the manuscript of carlyle's french revolution which he had lent to mill 
mill lent it to mrs taylor the lady who afterwards became his wife and was inadvertently destroyed the speechless agony of mill when he went to inform his friend the self-command with which carlyle and his wife concealed their own misery in endeavouring to moderate his self-reproaches these and many other details have been made familiar to us by many pens mill gave carlyle what monetary compensation he could and acted as he always acted in life with all possible nobleness mrs taylor who was the real culprit on this occasion was the wife of a wholesale druggist in mark lane when mill made her acquaintance his father remonstrated but he replied that he had no other feelings towards her than he would have towards an equally able man the equivocal friendship which was the talk of all mill's circle of acquaintances lasted for twenty years when mr taylor died and mill married his widow it is impossible to regard the enthusiasm of mill for this lady without feeling how much there was in it of the humorous how much also of the pathetic that mill had a most exaggerated opinion of her intellectual attainments there can be no doubt he declared her to be the author of all that was best in his writings much of his political economy he said was her work and also the liberty and the subjection of women his language with regard to her was always extravagant and grote said that only john mill's reputation could survive such displays mill's brother george declared that she was nothing like what john thought her and there is much evidence to show that she was but a weak reflection of her husband still it is impossible not to sympathize with such an illusion mrs mill died in eighteen fifty eight and was buried at avignon in france where mill spent many of the later years of his life and where he died in eighteen seventy three it was at avignon that the crown princess of prussia and the princess alice of hesse proposed to visit him when he with due courtesy declined to see them mill's works which are very extensive deal with philosophical psychological economical and political problems his logic was published in eighteen forty three his essays on unsettled questions in political economy in eighteen forty four his principles of political economy in eighteen forty eight and his liberty in eighteen fifty eight in eighteen sixty five he published his examination of sir william hamilton's philosophy four volumes of dissertations and discussions appeared between eighteen fifty nine and eighteen sixty seven and considerations on representative government in eighteen sixty one in eighteen sixty five he entered parliament as member for westminster losing his seat however in eighteen sixty eight it would be hard to speak too highly of mill as a man he was all kindness and considerate thoughtfulness for others and his ideal of life was a very high one carlyle's letters caroline fox's memoirs and so many other sources of information make this clear on the literary side he will be variously estimated as we survey him from one or other aspect of his many-sided career as a stimulator of public opinion the work he did was enormous 
this is not the place to discuss the value of this or that movement associated with, with his name but there can be no doubt that many questions like the reform of the land laws were initiated by him in the seventies his philosophy dominated oxford it is of no account today on the philosophical side mill's position is weakened by his ignorance of the more simple sciences which we now know to be the greatest moment in the study of intellectual problems mills knew little of physics and of biology still less his education in this respect belonged to the old-fashioned type his work in logic is all but unshaken although his book has been superseded for school and college use his psychology however his ethics much of his economics and above all his metaphysics must be corrected by later ideas doubtless mills readjustments in mental science are most valuable especially his red handling of the old doctrines but fundamentally these are humes mill's chief philosophical work was destructive he utterly routed the remnants of a still earlier philosophy furbished up with all the knowledge and all the acuteness of sir william hamilton but the great generalizations which have changed the whole drift of our philosophy are the conservation of energy and evolution including as the latter does the laws and conditions of life and in particular the doctrine of heredity for adequate philosophical guidance on these subjects we must turn to hubert spencer eighteen thirty three to eighteen eighty four but first let me point to the number of political economists who have followed mill in the discussion of relations of society to the wealth it produces mill's political economy was more of a systematic summary of the prevailing doctrines than an original work it long formed however the basis of ordinary english knowledge on the subject and by its adhesion to the wages fund and other erroneous theories it did not a little harm as well as good to economic science mill's most enthusiastic disciple in economics henry fawcett went far beyond his master in his acceptance of the main doctrines of the ricardo school many of the positions maintained in his political economy were abandoned by mill before his death particularly the wages fund theory and in his autobiography he traced his own progress to views which as he said would class him under the general designation of socialist he declared himself in favour of the common ownership in the raw material of the globe and an equal participation of all in the benefits of combined labour eighteen twenty four to eighteen seventy five eighteen thirty five to eighteen eighty two eighteen thirty eight professor fawcett who published his manual of political economy in eighteen sixty three continued to the last to hold to the old views and specially to favour as little as possible the intervention of the state as member of parliament first for brighton and afterwards for hackney he did great service by his criticisms of indian finance for more than four years eighteen eighty to eighteen eighty four he held the position of postmaster-general and introduced many valuable reforms into the department under his administration other economists of importance john elliot clarence and william stanley jevons have differed from mill in many theoretical principles 
but the fairest survey of the later developments of mills economics is given by henry sidgwick knightsbridge professor of moral philosophy at cambridge and by alfred marshall born eighteen forty two in his principles of political economy eighteen eighty three sidgwick attempts with great clearness to criticise the conflicting views of the older economists in the light of the modern and more socialist views he also attempts in his methods of ethics eighteen seventy four a compromise between the utilitarian and the intuitionist schools and he does this also in his elements of politics eighteen ninety one a comprehensive survey of political science mr marshall who holds the chair of political economy at cambridge has written economics of industry eighteen seventy nine and the principles of economics eighteen ninety a writer who did much to make foreign economists known in england and who seemed at one time thus to be the able leader of a new school was thomas edward cliff leslie whose essays are full of terse and suggestive criticism les died however without writing any work of first-rate importance he did something however following the line of writers like richard jones seventeen ninety to eighteen fifty five to bring academic theory to the test of actual facts eighteen twenty seven to eighteen eighty four end of the critics